Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show with me, Michael Tinkster. We are on a mission to share what Maverick leaders know and do to build businesses that deliver strong results and positive impact on people, society, and the planet. Thank you to our brand partner, BizSimply, for sponsoring this episode. BizSimply is the all-in-one workforce management software that enables your business to become more efficient and profitable. The software designed and built by hospitality experts to enhance the way shift-oriented operators manage their business, optimize their entire people journey, and making every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, how we grow, and how we serve our customers. Together, we wanted to share strategies and tools to make the industry thrive long-term. The customer who's coming on to ResX is somebody who's looking for something that they can't get. They've gone to the restaurant already. They've said, can I have a table for four on Saturday night? And it's full. So they're prepared to pay a premium to get access. So it's all about supply and demand, finding that happy spot and that people are willing to pay that balance two sides of the equation. This is Ross Iver, CEO and founder at Resex. Resex is a groundbreaking platform that enables the buying and selling of reservation and waiting lists in hospitality businesses. In this episode, Ross shares his very exciting intramural journey from operator to tech founder. And we dive into how he's taking the pain point of lost reservation from his own experience as an operator and now developer launched the platform to solve these. He shares some great practical examples of how top restaurants are using the platform to get bumps on seats and avoid expensive no-shows. We discuss the power of variable pricing and how customers are responding to this. And Russ also shares how he ensures as a founder that he has high impact every day on his work and how he makes tough decisions as a leader. If you liked today's episode, it will mean the world to me if you could leave a review of our show on our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The better the reviews, the better the guests, and ultimately, the better the learning is for you. Now there, Maverick, it's time to grab your pen, notebook, and enjoy. This conversation will make you look and think differently about your business model. I'm excited about today's conversation. And you would say, you're always excited, Michael. But I'm really excited because I actually think here is there's something around this conversation that maybe can shift a bit of mindset as well about how we think we can boost revenue in restaurants and and actually how we actually utilize our existing capacity better. And uh, and then this is this is this is not just theory. This is actually a thing that's actually been implementing right now a new platform that might can help change the whole concept around how we actually use capacity in a better way in restaurant and how we actually maybe sell to a better price even. So with that said, I will not butcher this anymore. I would like to welcome Ross to the, to the show. I'm extremely excited to have you here today, Ross, because I think you are bringing some new and exciting thinking into the conversation about how we actually can build better businesses. I'm delighted to be here, Michael. Thanks for the invite. We like to think we're bringing something new to the party. We think the concepts we've come up with in ResX are different, and it is a paradigm shift for the way one thinks about reservations, the value of reservations, the value of waiting lists, not just in the restaurant industry, but in a lot of other fixed capacity businesses as well. And that's really interesting. I'll grab that because it would be great to hear what led you to this, because what is your story and why did you find this problem around fixed capacity in a number of different settings? Like all these things, there's a story uh, behind everything, but I'll try and keep it short. I'm an accountant by profession. My background is large company, PLC, finance director roles. I've worked in Hong Kong in a global electronics manufacturer, CFO. I was CFO in, of Paddy Power, which is now Flutter PLC. So a lot of experience in the internet and gaming world. 
left those businesses and went to work for myself and actually went into a fixed capacity business as a change of lifestyle. So about 12 years ago, I opened up an indoor themed mini golf center, which is a classic fixed capacity business because we sell time slots. You know, what you do in that time slot, in my particular case, is you play mini golf, you play 18 holes of mini golf. But that really started to drive my interest in queues, managing waiting lists, in how could I differentially price in a cyclical business where I know on Saturday at four o'clock, I'm going to have a queue down the stairs with a 25 minute wait, but on Monday at 9am, I'm going to be empty. And the tumbleweeds are blowing through the premises. And I was thinking about how could I price the product? And I looked at different models around the world. We're, we're all used to differential pricing. We deal with it every day. If you want to book an airline ticket, you're involved in differential pricing. You watch the price of that ticket go up and down, depending on what's going on in the city you're going to. Uh, we see differential pricing if you're renting a car. We see differential pricing if you're renting a hotel room, depending on the football match that's on in that city at a weekend, the price might double or triple. If you want to go on an off weekend, it's much cheaper. So certain industries have differential pricing established and well accepted by the consumers. But in my small corner of the world, in mini golf, differential pricing didn't exist. So I started to think about it and I started to look at other businesses that were similar to mine. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw that most small reservation based businesses have the same problem. Whether you're a restaurant, a beauty salon, a hairdresser, a tattoo parlor, it doesn't matter. You're all, we're all setting time. None of us have worked out how to break the laws of physics yet so that we can sell time retrospectively. So if we miss the opportunity to sell and fill a time slot, it's gone. We all suffer from no-shows, which are the worst thing that can happen to a fixed capacity business because generally you've put in place the costs to deal with the expected service. And when you get a no-show, you, you lose both the revenue and for many people, you also incur the costs. So I sat down and tried to think of a way that would essentially improve the profitability of fixed capacity operators, improve customer service for the customers of those businesses so that we're in a position that we had a win-win situation. The customer would win, the business wins, and ResX as a business would win. And that's the background to how I came up with ResX. It was trying to solve a real-world problem of my own as an operator of a fixed-capacity business, if not in the restaurant space. Got the concept together. I brought some investors on board, and we set out to build a beta trial, which we did in Ireland in 2021. And we looked across a whole range of industries and we eventually decided to settle in the restaurant industry as the first industry we went into and decided to start in the UK. So where we are now is that ResX is now up and live operating in the UK. We've brought our first 20 or so restaurants on board and we're rolling out from Edinburgh through the Midlands to London. And what is the ambition? Resex, what is, what is the ultimate outcome you as a founder would like to see play out? Besides world domination, I'd like to see principle that underpins Resex be accepted. And that principle is that reservations or bookings have value and that Resex provides a way to monetize that value for operators and customers alike. And that paradigm can be applied across a whole range of different in industries, be it restaurants or hairdressers or any other reservation-based business. It's really interesting when you talk about, you talked about at the beginning, we are used to have 
variable prices for many things. It could be hotels, it could be flight tickets, it could be even, I've seen recently as well, parking fees in, in areas of central towns will go up depending on where you are. And you know it from trains as well. You have rush hour trains and you have out of rush hour trains. And I think also if you buy a Coca-Cola in a corner shop, it will be very different pricing in the corner shop than it would be in a hotel room. And the size of the Coca-Cola will also be smaller. But you're accepting that as normal as really as consumer. But I think what really interesting is you're bringing that kind of thinking into the restaurant space where we always have said a plate of food costs what a plate of food costs, no matter when you get it and when you sit down and have that experience. If it's nine o'clock on a Monday morning or it's four o'clock on a Saturday, when we all know that the pressure is really on on those high turnover days like Friday, Saturday, Sunday for many operators. And maybe there's some midway days as well for people in London. But what makes you guys stand out? What is it that you can do for the operator? What is the magic here? Well, what we're trying to do for the operator is find a way for them to do two things. We want to reduce no-shows because no-shows have a significant impact on profitability of a venue. And if you're lucky to be a business that doesn't have no-shows, congratulations, but you're probably pretty unique. Everybody has no-shows, it's just a matter of what degree and what your waiting list management system is that you can fill those no-shows. Now, for some businesses, restaurant businesses, you might be very much a destination event and you don't have passing trade and a no-show, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way you're going to refill it. If you're central London High Street, you might just get walk-ins that can fill a no-show. So the first part of it was how could we incentivize customers not to be no-shows? And in Dublin, where I'm based and where the company's based, we went through a phase, and I'm still in it, where people were booking three or four restaurants for a Friday night. They all get together and then they decide which one to go to. And the problem, of course, is one restaurant gets the business, three don't, and they are having huge rates of no-shows. That led to bringing in credit cards for charging of no-show fees. But the problem is that for most people who are going to turn up, they object to having to give their credit card in advance. And if you do actually charge somebody a no-show fee, you've lost that customer. They're never going to come back to you, even if the no-show was inadvertent because something happened. We all, we've all failed to turn up for appointments in our lives at some point when something genuinely means we can't make it. But the advent of this sort of structural no-shows by people multi-booking change the scene and that impact the sort of genuine no-shows. So what we did was develop a system that is essentially a secondary market in reservations. And what it allows the consumer to do who suddenly discovers they can't go to fulfill their reservation is to put that reservation up for sale on the platform with the consent of the operator, with the consent of the, the, the restaurant. It's pre-approved by the restaurant so that anybody looking at the website can see and who sees a reservation can be assured that it is a genuine reservation held in that venue. And we're hoping, therefore, to provide a financial incentive to those people who would otherwise be no-shows to sell their reservation. Now, you touched on um, really busy periods. This is a tool that works when you're busy. It's no good to you at nine o'clock on a Monday morning because there's no demand. It's a tool for your high demand periods when you as a venue should be full. And the worst time to have a no-show is when, you ha when you're turning customers away saying, sorry, no, we're fully booked Saturday night at eight o'clock. Can't possibly give you a table for four. 
And then all of a sudden you're sitting there with a table for four and the other diners can see that you've got an empty table and their friends couldn't get a reservation either. And it doesn't look good as well as not being good for the bottom line. So it's somewhat counterintuitive in that we are providing a financial out for what otherwise would be a poor customer, uh, which some people struggle to get their head around. But if you focus on what the win is at the venue, gets a full service that day instead of a no-show. And obviously the impact of profitability is significant. From a customer service perspective, you're offering your customers an ability to avoid getting hit with no-show charges. Or even for customers who, let's face it, had a reservation, but it's been a tough week and I'm not really sure I want to go out for dinner tonight, but we have the reservation and we've organized the babysitter, so we'll go go anyway. It gives them an opportunity to go, you know what, I'm sure the restaurant is fully booked. I'm sure that somebody would take our reservation. We might not actually be in a no-show period for charges, but there's somebody out there who wants it more than we do and it allows them to sell that reservation on. So you've now got a happy who's able to get access that previously couldn't get access because they're fully booked. You have a a reservation holder who's able to move their reservation on. And obviously the venue's happy because they're still going to have a full venue. And this system we call ResEx, and it's free for the restaurants because ultimately what we're trying to do is drive footfall for the restaurants. And they only uh, they only have to pay if they're involved in a transaction. In fact, what they can do is they can charge commission. So the restaurants are able to charge the buyer or seller a commission for allowing them to trade that reservation. And that commission rate is set by the restaurants themselves. They can take nothing if they if that's their position. Um, or we allow them to take up to 30%, but it's completely their choice. It's really interesting you say that you potentially want to sell your reservation to somebody else. Can you talk a bit about the learnings you've had with that, like consumers selling their, or customers selling their reservation, and what would that cost? What is, does it cost to acquire a reservation? That would be the first thing I was thinking about. I really want to go to that restaurant now there's a potential opportunity for me to do that. But what are like, how's the cost structure there? Is it like a percentage or is the them saying, are selling this for 40 it's pounds? It's very interesting. And it's the bit we're still getting the learnings on. There's obviously a supply and demand issue. Firstly, there's what would the average cover cost in that particular venue would have an impact. What we're seeing is that the price a consumer is willing to pay to buy a reservation and a price that a reservation holder is willing to sell at is a function of what the average cover price is. It seems to be about a third what the cover price per head is. So if you have a reservation for two and the average cover is £100 sterling, people be prepared to pay maybe 30 to 40 pounds per head for that reservation. Now, obviously, if you're talking a very hard to get into restaurant with a huge waiting list, those numbers go up. If you're talking about a sitting in that restaurant that's quiet, people might not be prepared to pay a premium at all because if the restaurant's not fully booked, they can get it for free. But a rule of thumb we're working to at present is about a third of the cover price, the average cover. That's what people are willing to pay. That's actually, that's a really interesting angle. I can see that as well. What about maybe we're going back to pick up the viable pricing again? Because I also wanted to hear what, how does guests react to that? That I have to pay different prices at different times. What has been your experience on that? So far, the experience has been good in that If you think about your customer base, um, you've got those customers who are very organized 
and book in advance and essentially they get the reservation for free in the restaurant business we give away reservations for free you don't have to pay up front like you do in a cinema or other fixed capacity businesses like an airline you don't turn up on the day and pay the customer who's coming on to resex is somebody who's looking for something that they can't get They've gone to the restaurant already. They've said, can I have a table for four on Saturday night? And it's full. So they're prepared to pay a premium to get access. Now, they might be one of these people who is structurally late and never on time for anything. And it's last minute. And they would be what they tell you in marketing school is the cash rich, time poor customer. They're disorganized and they, they're willing to pay for it. Those customers don't seem to have any issue. If they want the experience of being in that venue on that date and they're willing to pay for it, they'll pay what. And we have seen some very big offers on the system where people were prepared to pay well in excess of what the cover, the average cover is for a specific booking on a specific day at a specific time, but there wasn't a seller willing to sell. So the price they're willing to pay wasn't high enough. So it's all about supply and demand, finding that happy spot and that people are willing to pay that balance two sides of the equation. And I should say that all these transactions are anonymous. So it's a bit like buying stocks and shares as X is the stock exchange and the broker. We just act as the middleman. You as a consumer don't know who you're buying from, you don't know who you're selling to. So, because we want to keep the marketplace pure and we don't want anybody trying to manipulate the marketplace. That's where a lot of the learnings from my days in the betting and gaming industry come into play to stop collusion and so forth. Yeah, because that's of course you don't want to you don't want to create a black market, as you say, for, for football. Yeah, tickets, I, well, it's completely the opposite. What we're trying to do is structure a marketplace that's completely transparent. You know what the prices are. You're only buying genuine reservations. Uh, there are grey markets in a lot of things at present. Reservations for top restaurants do change hands. There's Facebook pages and WhatsApp groups and so forth around the world at your premium end where reservations do change hands. And particularly if you're talking about waiting lists for products and services moving outside of the restaurant space, um, there's a lot of unofficial markets. And what we were trying to do is bring visibility to them by putting them onto the platform in a structured manner where everybody can see what they're worth. And that's super interesting because I think that will be news for some people out there as well. That there's exactly a black market happening already. So exactly, it's also in a way to, as you as an operator, you are not, in principle, not interesting to be involved in that. You actually want to have a fair deal for your customers in a way. You don't want them to have to go on the black market. Imagine if you could then facilitate a more pure version of that and actually, you know, you know, meet that demand they have and that willingness, they are actually willing to pay a different price if it was available in a legal format. Exactly. And that's what ResX is doing because everybody is a party to the transaction. The restaurant is a party to the transaction. The reservation holder is a party to the transaction and the reservation seeker is a party. The, the, the restaurant knows who the buyers and sellers are they're doing it with their permission. Obviously, ResX as a platform is able to watch what's going on. And we have a very strict anti-scalping policy. So if we see people booking four or five reservations and putting them up for sale at the same time on a Saturday night in London, you can't be in five places at the same time. What we can do is see the serial offenders who are out there booking lots of reservations, but not actually attending them because we get the data. And with 
phone numbers and email addresses. There's a lot of matching you can do with some clever software where we can identify for the restaurants. This person is a serial no-shower or this person has three other reservations at the same time. So there's a risk they may be a no-show. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our brand partner, BizSimply, and one of their customers, Goldex Investment Group. They operate Costa Coffee and Caspar's franchises, as well as workspaces. Now, it's over to Bod Hemarshandra, their head of operations. The biggest win with BizSimply was freeing up the store manager uh, from the workload they have for the week. Scheduling and payroll plays a, a big part in the business. Obviously, it, it was taking over four hours a week for them before using Excel templates. They have to create the schedule beginning of the week and they'd have to finalize at the end of the week uh, for payroll purposes, which was taking around four hours, like I said. Now, I think with Be Simply, we managed to reduce it down to 30 minutes or less. All they have to do is just finalize the, the payroll at the end of the week by pressing a button. It's that simple. So it saves us around three and a half hours a week per store. And that's the biggest win we've had uh, with Be Simply. That's super interesting because then you start using data to make business decision in a different way. Actually, things that was out of your control suddenly becomes in your control as well. That's what you're saying as well. Yeah, I mean, it's all about data. And interestingly, one of the things I probably found most interesting as I delved into the restaurant space is for many operators, how little data they actually had on their own businesses. That's not a generalization and I can't say it about every restaurant. Some of them are extremely good and have sophisticated CRM systems that they're using, especially some of the modern ones on the marketplace. Um, but others were very much in the dark about what was going on. And when I would ask them, what's your average no-show rate? What's it costing you? They wouldn't necessarily have that information off the top of their head, which is something. I would expect uh, a business owner to have. It'd be really interesting for the audience to understand where are the biggest opportunity, where are the, some of the best use cases you've seen, because I'm starting to get a picture that actually you need to have quite high average spend, maybe you're a Michelin restaurant. Could you maybe share some of those use cases and say actually where our operator really have benefited from using Resex? Sure, you're right. We're starting at the high end. And the high end is split into several different sort of subsections. One of the most interesting ones is the prepayment high end. So there's a certain group of restaurants that, where you pay in advance. You don't pay a deposit. They don't hold your credit card. You actually pay in full, excluding wine, when you make the reservation. And those are non-cancelable, non-refundable. So that's obviously one very clear case that for the consumer who then can't go, be the sickness, be it whatever reason, they can sell on their reservation that they've already fully paid for and at a minimum recover their cost and potentially make a profit. So that's one use case. The other use case we're seeing is high demand restaurants that have a sort of international name where people are coming into a town for a specific period. They're only there for a short period of time. They want to get access to the, the venue. They're limited. So I would be that customer. I would be coming into London. I want to get to a particular restaurant. I'm only there for two nights. It's no good to me getting a reservation in three weeks time or a month's time. I'm there this Saturday night. So can I get a table? What would it cost me to get a reservation for two if I wanted to have a business din dinner, take somebody out? What would I be prepared to pay? So we're seeing that and that's at the sort of uh, Michelin star level or just below Michelin star. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Michelin star. It just has to be a venue where you're probably talking about demand exceeding supply for 60, 70% of service time. The idea originally came when I was going to Paris 
for a rugby match to, as a spectator, I should add. And I wanted to go to La Mijon for dinner and I couldn't get in, I couldn't get a reservation. And that got me thinking about, I'm sure there's somebody there who would sell me a reservation, but there was no mechanism for reaching into them to actually get, get that sale. So the Anne Jean would be known, but not at the Michelin star restaurant. In fact, I believe he has a somewhat adversarial relationship with the Michelin star system. So far, we're seeing it at the high end, but we've had inquiries from everything down to mid-range family restaurants who have this right demand profile. It's not about the price of a cover. It's about the demand profile. So you could be a really popular pizzeria where, you know, you want to get a table, but you just can't. And your 12-year-old or son or daughter wants to go there for their birthday, but you can't get a table because they're fully booked and you promised you would and you didn't and you forgot. This is a mechanism by which you could do it. And when we were testing the system in Ireland, I mean, my local Italian restaurant, the need for it, but what they would, the price at which a reservation would change hands for would be in absolute terms less than a Michelin star restaurant in the centre of Dublin, but relative to the average cover price, wasn't substantially different. So it's more to do with the demand profile than it is to do with the absolute price. And that's interesting because suddenly there would probably be people that has been sitting out there like me thinking it has to be around high-end prices, but exactly about the popularity of this place and actually getting access to it when everybody else wants and you are willing to pay that, like you'll be willing to pay, I need to go on summer, in the school summer holidays, I need to take my family away. I know that's the time we have to go away. I accept there's a premium than going in January where nobody will go as a massive premium. But I take, I accept that and I will do that because I need to make this happen because it's important for the family. And that's really interesting. I think also that's a different way suddenly talk thinking about how can you actually boost your revenue, not by actually trying to spend more money on marketing and trying to get more people to come to your venue, but actually utilizing what you already have. And that leads to the next thing to the operators that get, they must some super extra revenue in and profitability. And what do they spend this on? Because they then spent that because that's suddenly surprisingly extra money in your P&L. Yeah, it's extra money in your P&L with no overheads. So it flows straight to your EBITDA line to be, let's see, accountant in me coming out. What do they spend it on? Well, there's three things so far that we've seen. One, it just goes into general revenue and helps cover the massive inflationary costs that everybody has at present. Secondly, some are just putting it into the trunk pool in the UK as a way of helping generate staff loyalty. And thirdly, some are doing it for charity. So they say they won't take anything themselves, but the money goes to a nominated charity that might have something to do with the owners of the venue or their locality or it varies. So they're really the three things we see so far. That's super interesting as well, the staff thing, because that's a way of intensifying the staff as well, of making sure that they keep on being that popular to-go place they are in demand because it, the demand also is not just the product, but it's also the experience when people come there. And also it's a great way of retaining people in this tough environment where fighting on salaries can only be a losing game in the end because there's always somebody that want to outbid you on the salary. In terms of challenges facing the industry, from my perspective, which is somewhat outside it, staff has to be one of the biggest challenges facing the restaurant industry. I was speaking recently to a Michelin-starred chef who does some lecturing in a college 
And he was telling me that a few years ago, there'd be 40, 50 people in the class he goes to. Now he's seeing 10 or 15. So there's not, you're not getting the intake at the bottom level, the trainees coming into it. And that's going to have long-term structural impacts on the industry. Add in general issue of staff shortages that we're seeing globally. And then for the UK, obviously, you've got your own specific issues with Brexit and the impact on that's had on the hospitality trade. I think there's a lot of challenges there. So anything you can do to incentivize and keep staff is good. And I think putting the money into trunk is quite clever by some of the operators. You touch on challenges as like you put your accountant hat on and talking with all these operators. There's other challenges. You also talk about the inflation, of course. That's, of course, a challenge. Energy prices goes in there as well. I, whereas the other things just make issues. You almost mentioned the whole staffing thing. It's almost like a systemic issue now that when we don't get enough people in to the, the starting positions, then it's going to be really hard to, to in, in the in near future, to put an end to the challenge. If you're a chef patron now, there's one restaurant I was speaking with just before Christmas and he was putting in 80 hours a week. And you can't do that forever. You can't run a business and have a lifestyle and keep your life on the straight and narrow if you're having to work those sort of hours. And those sort of hours were what needed to keep the service going because there's just so short-staffed and the chef in question would have expected to be cut back significantly on his hours at this point in his life but he's working the hours that he was having to work when he was 30 building up the business that's not sustainable and that's i think will have an impact on uh, certainly high-end restaurants i we see noma making announcements about closing and there's a limit to what people can do as one of the interesting things when you speaking to the people in the restaurant business and not being in it myself is that it's quite short term the thinking it's about the next service it's about oh how are you oh we did 150 covers last night we're doing 160 tonight it, it, it's always and it's always what has just happened and what's just about to happen rather than sort of the longer term or medium term issues facing the business which is quite different to a lot of the other industries we're speaking to about reservations and waiting lists they have a longer term viewpoint so i don't know how that's all going to pan out for the, the restaurant space but i think that's staffing at the bottom in terms of new people coming in and the pressure on the people at the top in terms of ours has got to tell because it can't go on forever. And one thing is not coming in, but then actually also if the people who run the business, the senior teams, I also see that the, if you call it burnout or that's just not, I don't have anymore. I can't manage it anymore. And they start to give up and close shop, then you will also see that will have an impact on the quality of things as well, because that's still wisdom and experience that leave the industry. And if you have such an experience, I think, I think Rene Recipi talks about as a man can only take as much as he can, staying in this game and delivering it to the standards and the norms he want to. And if you can't do that, then it's almost not worth doing in the same format. They will continue in a different format. But it's interesting to see now that after fighting, which probably in our third years of fighting now since 2020, really hard, it's always been a tough industry. You start to see now, I just can't come up with any more energy. I just can't find any more ways and I can't keep on working, maybe having lots of I talk with CEOs, founders, restaurateurs, chefs, they have small children as well, and they don't want to lose that as well, just for being in the job. Yeah, work-life balance applies to everybody. And living your life from service to service is a very difficult thing to do, I would imagine. And only being as good as your last service. 
and always having to improve on it. So it's a lot of pressure to work under. Yeah, it is. What have you been launching your own businesses and been both in a, you call it a service slash, almost like a hospitality, the mini golf business, and then now a tech platform, being a leader in your business, what has been your most significant learning in the last couple of years? What do you take from all this transformation we're going through? I think for me is that there's so much commonality across so many businesses. It's about customer service. It's about understanding your customer, what they want, not necessarily what you want, which is a completely different thing altogether. It's about the increasing need to really understand the data around your business. Businesses are becoming so much more data-driven than they used to be. One of the things that's surprised me most as I delved into the hospitality industry is how uh, an awful lot of very successful restaurants have so little support structures in them. You have a chef patron running it, but they're essentially on their own when it comes to the business side of things. And you can really, I've really noticed a big difference between those venues where they've invested in professional staff to help run the business as opposed to professional staff who work solely in the kitchen side of things. Experienced quality reservations people, ex experienced quality marketing people makes a big difference. And I think with all the pressures that are on businesses, um, having those people as part of the team is going to become more and more important for success if you're going to be, if you're going to be a high-end restaurant. Yeah, and I guess also you can only wear so many hats and be good at so many things, or then maybe it's some of it is luck more than the ability. Always being in the right place at the right time with the right location helps, but just because you're a superb chef doesn't make you a superb businessman. Or just because you're a superb businessman doesn't mean you can fry an egg. They're different skill sets. And I think getting the right balance of skill sets is, is really important. Whether you're a, a two-star Michelin restaurant or you're a pet salon, a dog groomer, um, who is a completely different category of business, but you've got the same issues. You're still selling time. And just because you're the best dog groomer doesn't mean you know how to run a dog grooming business. So... That getting that balance of business acumen and culinary skills, I think, is has been a challenge and will continue to be a challenge. Yeah, and I guess also when it comes to one of the things I've learned in my own business career, and I think I did my did my university, but where I really learned about business was seeing my mom and dad, where my dad did the accounts and I learned P&Ls very early on in life. I had a little P&L for my little sausage trailer, but then I went to McDonald's. And in principle, they don't train you in being a restaurateur. They train you in becoming a business person and a better one than you were when you arrived to the business. And that goes from managing people, managing costs. But also, when it comes to all that, you have the right people on the team. Then there's also, we're in a time now, but there's a lot of hard decisions to be made. And I think a lot of people, when I talk with them, actually struggle about how we make hard decisions. How do we get clarity so we actually know we are making the right decision? How do you get around to that? Because you, you've been both working, you said in the beginning, the big corporates, you had your own businesses in different format. How do you help yourself to make better decisions or take these hard decisions when they're necessary? I think the first thing I always go back to is you don't know whether the decision you're making is right or wrong. Time will always will tell, but at the time you're making it, um, you don't know. All you can do is work with the information you have at the time. Not making a decision, actually a decision as well, which is the other thing people forget. Doing nothing is a decision. So I'm faced with a decision, be it a hard one or what I think is an easy one. I just hope I get more than 50% of them. But you're never going to know 
ultimately whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision because you don't know what would have happened if you went the other direction. You can say, yes, it worked out okay, but you don't know if it would have been better if you did the other thing or one of the other five options. So I try and not beat myself up too much over decisions. Do I really have to make a decision? Yes or no? Or do I just let the situation run? And then if I feel I do have to make a decision, I, you make it and you move on and you deal with the consequences and not get too hung up about it. And I really love that thing where you said that making no decision is also a decision. We often forget that or I'll make that decision in a couple of weeks time. And actually, then you're just pushing the problem and sometimes it rolls to become bigger and bigger. Or you make a decision, it's actually better not to. One of my bosses said once, sometimes it's better not to make a decision as long as you're just clear about what you're not taking a decision about. Exactly. Just see how times shapes it because sometimes you just need to give it more time because often as business owner and business leaders, we are impatient of nature. So sometimes we get to rash decisions as well that sometimes really fire back because we could maybe just have waited and then things have maybe solved itself and it got you had a bit more clarity about what the right decision was. So sometimes you need to follow the flow as well and accept that there's a hard decision, but you don't have enough information to take it yet and you need to time to work for your bit. I couldn't agree more. The key is that you understand in yourself that you're not making a decision is a decision and that you're not just avoiding it. There's a big difference between avoiding the thinking about the problem and coming to a conclusion and the sort of sticking your head in the sand and actually thinking it through and saying, okay, you know what, we just don't have enough information yet to, to make a decision. We're going to wait six months, three months, a week, whatever it might be, depending on the problem. You're, you're consciously doing something and personally it helps me feel more in control because you faced what the problem is and decided not to do anything for the moment, that's a decision. Move on to the next one. I think that's a really good one, especially in a moment where I hear when I talk with a lot of founders and business owners and CEOs is that there's a mound of things they need to make decision on. And then I always come, what are the 20% that gives 80% equation? Start putting down your options, put it on paper as well, get it out of your head. So you can think clearly because you can't think clearly when they're up there. You need to get them down there. There's just lots of noise and fussiness. That leads me to, to have a couple more questions for you, Ross, before we finish up. That was super advice on making hard decisions because I know that's one of the question actually people that are listening in to the show actually wanted to know more about in these times. So I think that was some, definitely something to chew on there. Is there a question you wish I've asked you in this conversation, Ross? And what is that question and what would you answer? Yeah, there's one that some people say when they first hear about ResX. And it's a credit to you that you didn't ask it, but I'll ask it of myself. Is ResX not just scalping? And because some people, when they first hear of ResX, think, oh, it's scalping. But if you think it through, which you've obviously done, you realize it's not. It's the fact, it's the opposite. Because what we're doing is trying to have a structured marketplace where the owner of the business benefits from the transfer of ownership of the reservation. They control the process, they put rules on it, they put limits on it, they can say, if they want to, that the maximum amount a reservation can be sold for is 50 euro, 50 pounds, or they can put any terms and conditions they want in. So it's very much about keeping control for the operator about what's going on, rather than losing control, which is what happens in a scalping situation. And that was also a really good question because I actually, I was thinking that at some point as well, I was making my notes, but I thought after we had our pre-conversation and talked with our shared friend Dino who introduced us, I thought, no, this is not what it is. And 
actually this is the business opportunity if you have the right demand as you mentioned earlier as well but that was a really good question to ask but of course there will be some people out there thinking is this actually scalping so that that's a really good one love that and also that you actually wanted to talk honest about that so thank you for sharing that ross where can people find out more and connect with you if people want to connect with me they can find me on linkedin ross ivers or they can get me through resx.com ross.ivers at resx.com will find me pretty easy easy enough to track down yes that's absolutely amazing we'll put that in the show notes so people can find it and connect with you if they didn't get it here i will say thank you so much ross for taking the time and share your insights and your journey with us here on the show we send you and the team at resex power and energy for implementing your vision for the future of reservation and demand models thank you very much i appreciate the chance to talk about it it's been very enjoyable i really appreciate that you're listening in So, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate, or give a review, or subscribe to one of our channels. Which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is the key to become a better leader. So, I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Collective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be maverick. <laughs>